Welcome to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Welcome back to the podcast, and this is the first story of our third season. So we started this podcast in April of 2020, just as the pandemic broke. And um, although at first it was an attempt to stay connected to our community and to give folks something to do when they couldn't actually come to our center or any other spiritual center, it's now uh, continued on. So today's story is called Letting Go, and this story was written by Zen Master Daehang, a South Korean Zen monk, and she died in 2012, uh, was uh, born and raised in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and uh, at the time that Korea was unified, there was no distinction between North and South, and she wandered as a, uh, a homeless girl, uh, not yet a monk, from the time she was uh, eight years old. The name of the book is My Heart is a Golden Buddha, published by Han Maum Press. And Zen Master Daehang was uh, cherished by her students and, and hundreds and hundreds of maybe thousands of followers. And one thing that made her unique in the, the Korean paradigm is that she taught, uh, she had students that were female monks as well as male monks. It's very unusual for, uh, for uh, male monastics to study with women. And she also taught lay people. And her basic approach to teaching was that everyone, regardless of circumstance or background, uh, could be shown their true mind or their original nature. And so she made great effort to teach people um, uh, to show people their own uh, inherent awakened mind uh, and did not stand on pomp um, or status. So here we are. The story is called Letting Go. Long ago, in the high mountains of Korea, a traveler was making his way home along a mountain path. Clouds were drifting between the peaks and the mountains seemed to vanish into nothingness, only to reappear moments later. At times the clouds would close in and turn his world into just a few misty paces in front of him, with the only sound that of the river far below. It was all so beautiful, and in its own way. And he suddenly had a moment of deep spiritual insight it was as if he could see that everything came from the same place. Everything was so bright, and he had never before experienced such peace and tranquility. He stopped and gazed out over the mountains and thought to himself, I am truly fortunate. A few moments later, he 
continued on his path, and his thoughts naturally began to turn toward the past. He began to see how he had injured those he loved, friends and family that he had perhaps not paid attention to or treated poorly. He began to think about ways that he might remedy those relationships. And he was no longer paying much attention to the path before him. He was intent on getting back to his relationships and making them right with this newfound insight. He stepped a bit too far off to the trail right, and with a sickening rush, the ground gave way under his feet. He toppled sideways into the abyss. Somehow he managed to grab a tree root as he fell. He clung, clung desperately to the root and tried to pull himself up, but there was nothing above the root to grab onto. He was stuck, hanging on the side of the cliff. The clouds closed in, and he couldn't even see up to the top of the road, but he could hear the river below and imagine the, la the large rocks and the long fall awaiting him. With all of his strength, he cried out with a wavering voice, Help! Is anyone there? Help me! A few moments later, amazingly, someone called back. An old Buddhist nun poked her head out over the cliff. Oh, thank God, pull me up, the man cried. I'm not strong enough. But if you just let go, you'll be fine. The ground is right there below you. Are you nuts? He said. I can hear the river. I'll be crushed on the rocks if I don't drown. No, really, she told him. The ground is right below your feet. Just take a look down. The man tried to look down, but between the heavy fog and his panic, he could see nothing. There's nothing there. Are you trying to kill me? Are you a demon? The nun narrowed her eyes. Listen, she said. You asked me to save you, and now I'm trying. I know you're afraid, but you have to let go of that branch. You're just wearing yourself out, clinging and yelling like that. I promise the ground is right there below you. The nun's firm reproach gave the man a little courage. He was still very afraid of falling, but was a little bit less scared. Oh, do I have to let go? I still can't see anything but I can't hang on here much longer. The nun seems pretty confident I'll be all right. And with that thought, the man closed his eyes and let go. In the next moment, he hit the earth. It was soft. The cliff he thought he was hanging from so desperately was just a few meters high. The whole time his feet had been dangling just above the ground. And now we have Dehang's commentary. What the man was clinging to and what he let go of wasn't just the tree root. Behind his clinging was more than even the fear of death.
Mixed into his fear were all of his attachments to possessions, to desires for recognition or fame, to his disappointments over the things that had not gone well in his life, and even the attachment to his concern for his family and the newfound spiritual attainment that he was holding on to. So you can imagine just how much courage it must have taken for him to let go of that branch. It's a lot easier to talk about letting go than to do it, especially when it's wrapped up with our family, our children, our pride, our self-respect, all of the things that we value and treasure, especially our ideas of ourself and our situation. But letting go is essential, and it is the foundation of all spiritual work and practice. The irony is that we're already letting go each moment. We're naturally designed, like everything else in this world, to let go. Just take a look at this teaching. Every moment that appears is the result of the previous moment disappearing. When we participate in an act as simple as walking, in order to go forward with the next step, we have to leave that behind. We have to leave the former step behind. When we're breathing, it's the same dynamic. When we've finished exhaling, then we naturally inhale. But the reason that we can't let go of this in other parts of our life is simple, because we think about things. We deeply begin to believe that we can't, and we begin to have imaginary fears of what will happen if we let go. Even though there's not a single cell in our entire body that doesn't let go, our thoughts and feelings somehow manage something differently. So we have to really investigate this kind of teaching and not get caught up in the idea, I have to let go. Rather, we have to take a look at the way things are and recognize that this entire world is a process of transformation and impermanence and letting go, one moment flowing into the next, one breath turning into the next, one step flowing into the next. We have to come to trust this process and see it as our very foundation. And this completely takes care of everything. We have to trust that we'll know what to do in any circumstance by continuing to rely on our own mind. Deeply and thoroughly come to trust our foundation. We have to keep working on it until it becomes as natural as breathing in and breathing out. And only then will we know what it means to live free and to live true. Well, Sunam, I guess I'd like to start by asking you, after hearing that story, um, how, what does it mean to you, this idea of letting go? Or teaching of letting go? Well, I think it's a story that kind of reflects uh, my general teaching over the last 
a year or two where I emphasized uh, when you begin sitting in meditation, the idea of recognizing that thoughts and and feelings, the mind stuff is sort of, is always coming up and as long as you don't get involved with it, it, it passes through and I think that's a, a way of saying we're kind of letting go of those thoughts as they come up. And my experience is that there's nothing that you should hang on to. So let's just say um, you lo- really love someone. And I always think the true love is when you're expressing it through what you do on their behalf. But each day, you have to have let go of the day before. Like, it's not good enough to love yesterday. If you really love someone, and you love them really each moment in order to be able to do that purely. Because usually, we all start with that uh, love sense with a partner, right? And everyone wants to keep that. The best way to do that is to just keep letting go. And, and, and then when you're letting go, I think the potential for growth is tremendous in a relationship and also in the spiritual practice that, that we do called yeah. Zen. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I. one thing that came up in this story when Master Dehang was giving her um, sort of teaching at the end, her commentary, reminded me of another aspect of, of what you've been teaching the past year. And that letting go, she said to let go of the idea of letting go, because that's just the way that things unfold. She called it the way of things. And pointed out that, you know, like when we breathe, we exhale, and then the inhale naturally comes. When we walk, we have to let go of the step before. So we're calling it letting go, but that's really just the kind of the natural law of the universe, and that we, she's implying there, that we follow the same law. And that's been a huge part of your teaching the past year, sort of bringing in the early Chan or Zen texts from ancient China, and it's Taoist influence, the early Taoist influence, and really sort of predecessor to Zen, um, that we follow nature and the natural laws of of, of this world. Um, so, is I wonder if you could speak to that. If anything comes up for you in terms of um, of what I've just said and and the, the kind of the way things are, and that letting go is sort of a kind of getting in line with with the way things are rather than the way we want them to be. Right, and I agree with you. The only thing I would like to point out is that the difficulty with using the term nature Mm. is always the same, and that is that we, as humans, in this culture at least, we think of nature as being everything that isn't us, or man-made, so to speak. Yeah, if it's not man-made, it's made by nature. Right. And I think the truth of the matter is what we're t- 
talking about is is the unfolding of the Tao. Like, this is the way everything works, including us. Like, it's us that are building. And so it, you can't separate us from this this unfolding. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing to grasp because if once you begin to appreciate your own life uh, in in this letting go sense, you'd have to then expect that everything wants to experience being let go. So why then would you tie somebody else up or something else up yeah. with your own ideas? Yeah. It's kind of like getting to the point of what you talked about this morning informally. Why would we actually hunt creatures if we recognize that they also want to just live their life out just like we do? Right. But again, I think that most hunters, and not all, so let's make that clear, are doing it out of something other than it, it just it doesn't it feels okay to them because they rationalize that it is whether they're basing it on the number of deer that will die so we can take this many out that's a rationalization every creature wants to live yeah and if you didn't if you wanted to save them and you felt like they were going to die because of lack of food how about feeding them like you could see from our experience up here, it doesn't take a lot of money to feed a lot of deer. Um, we did it. And uh, when you think about that possibility, yeah. with every creature we had to have enough to eat, especially if we left the environment alone. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's a really important distinction that we're, we don't want to talk about nature. We want to talk about the Tao and what that means is yeah. the unfolding naturally of everything and that we're part of that process. Yeah. Yeah. And then the question that you asked me about it, I, uh, I think it's a legitimate spiritual practice to recognize that you are in the process of letting go, as you've pointed out, you can't uh, you, you can't account for all the things that are taking place internally yeah. that you don't have any control over. But as long as you provide it with the right uh, uh, fuel, yeah. it's going to perform all those functions, and it'll perform them as long as until they wear out, basically. That's interesting. So, no, it, it, what what that sort of the pictures that come up for me as you're talking that way are that, yeah, we, in a sense, by design from the moment we're born, we're in a perpetual state of, of shedding. And it's just, it isn't something we can make up. It isn't letting go is, is I mean, it can be a practice, but in that sense, it could feel a bit, you know, like a formula, you know, like saying, I love you, I love you. You brought that up earlier. Where, whereas true love is is an activity. It's a it's a conduct or a behavior. It has nothing to do with the words or yeah. even a feeling, because feelings, you know, if anyone who's ever any, anyone who's ever been in love recognizes that love can turn to hate within moments. You know, in the course of a a dispute. So feelings are so unreliable, but true love is. You've always taught this is a is a conduct. And you do that conduct even when you don't feel like doing it, which is 
very powerful. Um, so it's kind of like you're you're emulating the truth. Well, um, you're manifesting the activity of true love. Yeah, uh, and it's a choice. In, in order to do that, um, you you have to act. Mm. It's not. It's 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 or enact. Enact. Uh, yeah. Love, not you know. Try to feel it or say it. Uh, I don't. I don't think that is sustainable. Mm. And the other thing I think about letting go that I think most of us can relate to is, especially when you've had, I guess, emotional pain primarily, but it mm. could apply to some degree to physical pain. The longer you hang on, the more painful it is. Yeah, it doesn't get better because the process of hanging on is thinking about all the reasons that you you have for doing that. Yeah. But it doesn't make you get better. It makes you get worse and worse. Yeah, that's right. So what, the, what you're saying there is the suffering, the pain, is the hanging on is the pain. There yeah. isn't, you know, when you closely examine it, the pain doesn't really, pain is not really pain unless you're sort of hanging on to it. It has a, yeah, it's a, that's been my own experience anyway. Well, I notice even with physical pain that there's a certain amount of physical pain yeah. if you've injured something in particular. But yeah. as you age, there's physical pain. But if you really want to make it difficult on yourself, think, think about, about it. it. Yeah. And it, it just, everything changes when you just try to go about your business, uh, your life, yeah. each moment. And whether you're limited by an injury or um, something else shouldn't make any difference to you unless you start thinking about it. You know, we have cases of people that have had limbs amputated and have just moved forward with their lives. And if they dwelled on it, we've we've all seen movies in particular where people go through hell having lost a foot and... uh, you know, resist the, you know, getting an artificial foot or moving because that's happened to them. Yeah. And then, but they eventually have to let go. Yeah. Because not letting go just leads to dying in your own kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, yeah, I, I think that the, the beauty of, of the story is, you know, it's kind of a comedy. It's like, you know, this guy has this awakening. He's walking along the mountain path, has an incredible experience. And then the very next moment, he's down the cliff. Um, and boy, yeah, things happen. Things happen, right. And he fortunately grabs the branch. And if he wouldn't have grabbed the branch, he probably sounds like would have been fine. He would have wound up a few meters below. And then this, you know, he calls out for help. The old nun leans over and you can sort of, I've, I've had this experience with you. I've, you've been my Zen teacher. I've been your apprentice for, you know, a number of years. And how many times I can't count on my hands or feet um, where... You know, you've sort of pointed out something to me that was, from your perspective, I would imagine pretty obvious or pretty clear. But man, from my vantage point, mm-hmm. no way, you know, yeah. like, I don't trust you. I don't trust what you're saying. 
And the idea of following that seems almost impossible. And then when I have had the ability, you know, in retrospect, I realized, man, these really weren't big deals, except to me. And, um, and you, because you were thinking about it. <laughs> right, and because it involved preserving some, I don't know, you know, idea of the self or self-identity or just plain fear. You and know? let's say somebody hurt your feelings. Yeah. So it, it starts out with a feeling problem. Right. And now you're thinking about it. Right. And as you think about it, even the feeling comes back. Right. And so you end up back in the same place that you were one hour ago, one day ago, whatever right. it is. And no one cherishes those moments. Right. They're, they're the nightmarish moments that we live. I I think I you know I know I told you this before but yeah. just for the people that haven't heard this when I was a young I hadn't been ordained yet I was a henjanim and my job because we didn't have a proper temple my teacher was in a basement apartment and he had one little room and we had a living room and a dining room that we turned into the meditation hall and I lived across the street and my job became that I would come over in the morning and wake my teacher at five o'clock, and then I would set up the altar. Yeah. And then he would come in, and we'd make our bows, and then go about whether we were sitting or chanting or whatever. Yeah. And the night before, um, we had, I guess you could call it an argument. I don't think he was arguing so much as I was really upset yeah. by something that he said. Yeah. And it angered me. And I went home, I had a miserable night sleeping, but I did get to sleep early in the morning, but when I got up to go over, I just, I didn't want to face him. I was so ashamed of what I did, so I thought, well, that's okay, all you got to do is apologize. So <clears throat> I walked over, I walked in his room, and I woke him up the way that I usually do, and then he sat up, and, and I started my apology, and he said, stop. He said, you've got a clean slate this morning. Don't fill it up with old things. Yeah. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. If that's where he's coming from, that's where I want to be. Yeah. Because I certainly wasn't that person at that point. Was there a lot of relief there? Oh, my God. Encounter? Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and there was no residual from him. Sometimes... Yeah. People could be passive-aggressive because yeah. they're angry and they're pretending they're doing that. Yeah. There was nothing. And I I found that with him uh, a great deal of my, of my life. Yeah. And I wanted to emulate that because so often in life uh, we do things and we feel guilty and we waste time being guilty or being regretful about what we didn't do. But... I mean, sometimes you can go fix it, and, and because the person isn't somebody, say it's your family member that not, knows nothing about how you're practicing, well, yeah, then go to them. Just say, I apologize. I don't know what I was doing the other day, but yeah. I, it was not right. And But in order to do that, you still have to let go. Right. So the, it always comes back to you. You can't count on the other person giving you the clean slate. You have right. to give yourself a clean slate. Right. And then they would have a clean slate as well with you. Yeah. That's right. 
Hmm. Well, I experienced that with you, Sonam, and it's, I think, one of the, the reasons why I am, you know, have, have been comfortable and, and have decided to, you know, to continue training with you as a Zen student is because of, you know, that kind of mind and recognizing, I guess, that what the way that I've experienced it in, in terms of my own training, um, not just with you, but with uh, Roshi in California and then to some degree with monks in Korea, you know, the monks of Zen, of Zen, the minds of Zen monks just tend to be sort of unfettered. You know, you, you act like a jerk and they're not taking it personally because they've at some level maybe reconciled that, yeah, they've acted like jerks too. And it didn't help them for someone else to be holding that against them. Everybody wants to, as you're saying, everybody wants to live. Everyone wants to be free. And it seems to me Zen monks are in the business of first getting themselves free. But by doing that, they're really able to help you be free by not holding anything against you and not wanting anything from you. Well, and I that think that's a, a very, very crucial point that you're making. And as you're coming into you know, a teaching career, I would just urge you to recognize that if you have any vested interest in the person that you're working with, doing something that, that, you know, that you want them to do that oftentimes they don't want to do. Right. You, you need to let it go. Like, you, you can suggest things to people, uh, of course. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the guidance that you give them. But when you get to the level of insisting it because you're coming from a place that I need you to do this. You've got an agenda. I won't be happy. I won't be happy. Yeah. You've got to have your own level of happiness. Yeah. And then if people come in, you can be free. It's kind of like uh, if, you know, if either one of us overheard, you know, two members arguing and we're not involved in the argument, yeah. we could very well talk about it uh, cleanly. Yeah. Where they can't because they're emotionally involved. Right. So as a teach in a teacher-student relationship, that's where it has to e- it has to evolve to. Yeah. And and I think that we're in the process in this country of growing teachers. And one of the I think really deadly things for students, uh, which certainly you know was a foible of mine is expecting perfection from the teacher and not recognizing that, oh, the teacher might have spoken too strongly to the night before, but the next day, what's important is they're not hanging on to that. Like, that's over. Now we're moving on. And the only time they deal with it is when another person uh, brings it to them, That say the person they were having an argument with or... Uh, even shouting at. Mm. I mean, I've seen teachers like Roshi. I've seen uh, teachers like Wandam Sunam shout at people in certain situations. Right. This is a normal response to very unusual circumstances. Like the other day with the bear, I went out there and shouted. You heard me. <laughs> you did shout at the bear. Yeah, yeah. because because we needed it, him out of here. Yeah, it was a threat to us. So you can't himself. operate on rules. We're right. human beings, and there's appropriate behavior. And there's inappropriate behavior, but yeah. shouting 
can't be all defined as a negative experience. Right. It definitely gets your attention. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, I think what I hear you saying there is that it goes both ways. That in the, what we're describing in the beginning is, or, or earlier, is that the, the teacher is not holding anything against the student and allowing the student to sort of, you know, there's no agenda, there's, um, you know, kind of holding space for the student to be free, but it has to go the other way too. Well, the, let's just say, you know, in our li- lives together, I'm heavily critical of something that you did yeah. on a given day. Right. Now, all I want from that is for you to take a look at it. Right. And is that true or not? And if it is, then then you would have the initiative uh, as a Zen trainee to attempt to change that. Right. And that's what the teacher has to trust about the student. Right. That, no, they're not suddenly going to go from zero to 100, but to see some progress in what you've been pointing out to them. If they just hang on to, no, I'm going to do it my way, yeah. now it becomes a problem between the two of you. Right. Hanging on or, or not letting go becomes a problem between people. It happens all the time in in relationships where uh, neither person can let go. But even if one can, I think that has a strong influence on the other person. Yeah, I agree with you, Sunim. I think one thing that could be helpful as we move forward in, in Zen in America is to to sort of demystify. We talked quite a bit about this topic yesterday, um, you know, clearly not as part of this podcast, but, you know, this this old world and sort of very indigenous um, reality of people becoming apprentices, you know, early on girls would be apprentices, you know, to typically to their mothers, their grandmothers, their aunts, their cousins, learn how to cook and clean and, and raise children collectively. And then, you know, because of the biological distinctions being more, you know, more relevant in, in previous generations, the men would often train with men, fathers and, and uncles and so on, at different types of, of ways of living. And eventually that seemed to evolve into carpentry and sewing and anything you need to learn how to do. And it seems to me that learning how to work with one's mind and how to do spiritual practice, whether we're talking about meditation or living in a spiritual community, um, is a skill. Um, For me, you know, a skill that was never taught, you know, it isn't something that's taught in schools. So but that by the time I found you as a teacher, I was already an adult or a teenager, nearly an adult. And you began teaching me the skill of working with my own thoughts and feelings and, and what they are and, and that they are impermanent. You know, meditation is a way of seeing through them and sort of cutting through the residual, you know, kind of behavioral reactions to thoughts and feelings. And it's, it's remarkable that, that that idea of taking a teacher and having them give you feedback the same way a carpenter would say, look, that's a two by four, not a two by six. We sort of don't expect that same type of thing. We don't we don't insist on that same type of thing in spiritual practice. It's almost like a do it yourself. You know, listen to an app, um, 
you know, anybody can be a teacher. Like I just, it, it's interesting to me that we don't apply the same uh, understanding toward spiritual practice as we do other forms of, uh, of study. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that's because we kind of have a sort of metaphysical view of it rather than it being a really solid, you know, very worldly, worldly type of skill that we need to have as human beings. Like I need to learn how to work with my thoughts and feelings. And I can't expect that I'm sort of going to innately know how to do that in the same way I wouldn't know what a two by four is, unless someone teaches me how to swing a hammer and, and, and measure a two by four. It's a skill. I wonder if you have, is that true? Or do you think that people can innately wake up and um, the, I guess in our country, in America, it seems like more and more people want to sort of do it themselves when it comes to spiritual life. I think that um, what's left out of our educational system uh, and left up to the families, which often it gets left out there too because of lack of skills, is what I would refer to as personality development. Okay. In other words... We get quickly to the skill development of a person, regardless of what field you're talking about. Okay. And we leave behind the the whole development of the personality. And and I'm experienced around, you know, sport and we see it all the time. A great athlete and he falls apart because he's never had any personality development and his personality is harboring kind of dangerous signs that are going to cause him a great deal of difficulty. But this can happen in any way of life. I'm just pointing out that's where I see it oftentimes. It's unexplainable. Everything is there, but this personality is just not right for the situation. Yeah. So I think that is something that needs to be done even before college. Right. Maybe during the high school years, right. the personality development is part of the of, of a, a good curriculum and not just a junk course, but serious course. Right. And I would say you could do it in the form of, it's just my background, a small group dynamics, kind of a sensitivity training. Yeah. And uh, I think it would be so worthwhile to young yeah. people because I see when they come to us, it's oftentimes personality issues. That's right. They, and even learning how to be with other people right. and listening to them right. is part of developing a well-rounded personality. I agree with you. That's that's. I think that's great. And that brings me back to the final part of the story where this man ultimately, I mean, he didn't really have a choice. He had to let go of the branch. He wasn't able to hang on there forever. But he couldn't quite trust the nun. And, you know, he even asked her at one point toward the end, are you a demon? Like, are you trying to kill me? And yet she had appeared with no other intention other than just walking down the path and, and saw a man and was able to point out the obvious, which he couldn't see. And so part of personality development, I, I assume, ideally would be the ability to trust that other people who hold powerful positions in your life, your parents or your educators, actually do have your best interest at heart. And if they tell you you can let go of the branch, you can. Ultimately, you have to do it. But 
having, I think, I, I see that in our Zen Center a lot, that people come with really, really severe trust issues. I showed up with them as a young person. You know, I hadn't even lived an entire adult life. I don't, was only a teenager. Came with incredible trust issues. And that doesn't seem to be innate because young children are very trusting. So at some... Well, we, we, there, we have ways in the psychological um, a profession to nurture trust. Yeah. And, and I consider that part of personality development. That's a good... And, yeah. and it is left out. There's no question about it. Yeah. We just expect earlier and earlier that people are going to make decisions about how they want to make a living. Right. Which I'm not, I don't paint a picture that's a bad thing. Right. I think it's a bad thing if it comes at the cost of personality development. Yeah. Like I, I recall in the, you know, the late 50s and early 60s, if you went to an Ivy League school, personality development was part of your uh, uh, curricula right. during the course of your stay. They weren't going to let fools out. And that's changed. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean, I'm exaggerating when I say fools, but people that have failed to develop a personality, and they may have a personality, let's say, akin to a teenager, and they're an electrical engineer, or uh, they're going into pre, they're in pre-med going into medical school. Right. And we see that when we get with those people, yeah. and they're hard to work with. Right extremely hard to work with. And I don't mean just in Zen training, but yeah. when you're working with people in the world, yeah. uh, if, if you don't have a, a personality, I would say it kind of a giving, open personality that yeah. you're willing to see all sides of things, right. uh, that's a skill that has to be developed. And yeah. I think the place to do that is somewhere in our educational system. We, right. That's a little too much for some parents could do that, but for most right. parents, we have to find another place to do it. And I don't think uh, necessarily religious institutions should should have to do that. Right. I think it's an educational thing. It's based on science, right? Let's look at the evidence and apply what we need to develop a personality. Almost anyone can tell you when they're with somebody that's troublesome, what what would be better about them if right. if they had a chance to to reshape that? You can't at that point, right. but you can. Uh, it's a legitimate body of first study and right. then practice. And you've you've often told me over the course of of our time together that that Zen practice or spiritual practice, you know, true insight can actually help change. Like you know, if someone is has come fully formed and they've got, you know, they haven't developed personality. I, I th I th I'm thinking of it more as kind of like their character, their ability to trust and yeah. follow Come into through. their own. Right? Yeah, follow through, you know, say something and follow through with it, you know, sort of not emotionally fall apart under pressure. I mean, there's so many aspects to a healthy character and personality that, you know, if you show up to the Zen Center at 30, 40, 50, 60, and you haven't done that work, it's pretty difficult. And you've often said, well, yes, but, you know, changes can be made that might just be a bit more slow and gradual, but true insight, you know, spiritual realization, you know, the, 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 the insight that comes through spiritual practice can impact that. Um, well, we're doing a philosophical practice, and it should be made clear that 
you know, Zen is not a religion. Yeah. It never has been a religion. Right. It's, it's been a portion of, in countries like China and Korea in particular, yeah. a portion of institutional Buddhism. Right. But the truth is it can stand alone. And it's even in Korea where I was, right. everyone knew the creme de la creme were in the Zen hall. Yeah. For the most part. Right. So That's the ideal. So can I ask you about that then, Sinem? So given the fact that most people have not in our culture, you know, had the, the, the fortune to encounter character or personality, personality development or come with a lot of emotional baggage and trust issues, as many of us show up to Zen with that stuff, um, what sort of, you know, what kind of remedy would you offer in light of that to someone? Sorry to give you such a thick question, but, you know, based on the story of letting go and, um, you know, what someone listening is, you know, maybe listening. Well, I think interacting, as a teacher, interacting with students that, 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 that as they're able to uh, reveal the corners of their personality that they tend to hide because they think others won't like them and they're quite right about that oftentimes uh, and you know just looking at what what brings them to that place where they they have what we could refer to as a personality defect or quirk you know like wow that person just blows up in a you know, over almost anything. Right. That's a personality problem. Like, there are things to get upset about, and we're never going to say yeah. you should never get upset. But some people, it's extraordinary what they can get upset with. Well, and the conduct that they might do afterward, which could, you know, can be a huge blow up, you know, getting upset over something small and then ruining your life over it. That well, happens. I remember a case where yeah. uh, you had a, a person working in the food business, yeah. and you're the manager of the food business, and and the person you were trying to develop them as kind of the lead hand, yeah. and you tried to encourage the person to uh, do things the way that you you taught 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 them, right. and this person wanted to do things their own way, and I just thought to myself, this is was a team of people working to produce five or six or seven items. And how would that person think that if each person decided to do things their way, right. how that's going to work? Like, yeah. it would be like going to the Ford Motor Company and and not doing your job on the line uh, uh, because you didn't want to do it that fast. And you said, I'm, you know, right. I, I don't work like that. And yeah. I, I'll try to do every other one yeah. or every third one. Yeah. It just won't work. Yeah. And, and if you don't want to be in that situation, if you want to go do your own thing, by yeah. all means, go do it. Yeah. But don't try to be part of a team. And more and more, we're finding out that people that are team members, whether it's in business or universities or sports or music, uh, like we were listening to the symphony orchestra the other day, and I just thought to myself, like those those people cannot do what they want. They, well, they, they could, but it wouldn't quite sound the same. No, would of it? course not. <laughs> it In fact, really it be. would be pointed out to them in no uncertain terms by the yeah. person, the conductor. Or it in might this be case. called avant-garde jazz. <laughs> you know, we'd have a different a different appreciation audience. Yeah. 
Well, Sunam, what I heard you say to that question I asked a bit earlier was that if you are suffering or struggling, then you recommend, what I, what I heard you say there is I re- that you recommend finding someone to reveal yourself to and yeah. that you trust and ask them for guidance. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that seems to be at the heart of Zen apprenticeship. Um, ultimately, we are coming and saying, you know, I don't understand why I'm born in order just to die. That's sort of the the, the crux of Zen training. Yeah. But everything else, you know, is kind of peripheral to that. And um, I I have to say that I, I, you know, my intention in setting up this podcast was recognizing that most people are not going to show up to Zen centers or even spiritual centers because of a lot of the trauma that's been inflicted by religion. It's kind of turned people off. Um, and at the same time, more and more people can listen to things like podcasts. And I, I have, you know, I'm so grateful for having met you at 16 years old. And I remember the first time that I, when I started studying Zen with you as a teenager, and my father was baffled. And, um, he said, what do you do at that Zen center that you like to go there on your Saturday off from school, you know, and I have to drive you there and all that. And I said, oh, you know, we, we meditate, we sit in silence for a um, period of time early in the morning, and then I clean all day. In fact, I spent the whole weekend cleaning the blinds. And I was so, like, thrilled, you know, with this experience. And my father is not a very emotional person. He started to tear up. And he said, my God, you know, you, we haven't been able to get you to clean, help clean the house ever. You know, you're so, like, you never want to help out around here. What is that? And I didn't have the ability to say it to him then because I didn't really know what was going on. But what I recognize now is that because I met you and I trusted you as, I would say, like like as a mentor, it didn't matter what you asked me to do. What you basically said was, you know, when you clean these blinds, which I had trouble with at first because I found it so tedious, um, find your peace of mind in cleaning the blinds. Like, like treat it like it's the most precious thing on earth and see what that experience is like and then come back and tell me. Yeah, it's the how-to, right? And, right. And so I realized that there was the first realization I had was that I'm able to sort of influence my ability to have a good time or a really shitty time in this body and on this planet. And it By has how to, you frame it. Right, and that's right. And my willingness to be open to your guidance was key to that. So I, I think, you know, as you're saying, early is important. If my parents would have had that understanding, you know, they had their own struggles having to support a family and all that. If, for example, my father and mother would have sat me down at 10 years old with my brothers and said, hey, look, cleaning the house is how we support and love one another. So every Saturday from 9 to 12, this is what we do. I mean, that sounds a little bit like leave it to beaver, but I think that might have worked because... I think the the fault in that thinking, unfortunately, is that families are learning uh, after the fact. Like, my dad was very good at putting me to work, but he didn't teach me the how part of it, like right. that, I just thought it was 
burdensome to have to go out and cut the grass, and he wanted it done a very specific way, one way, and then a second time over it the opposite way, and so it was like a burden, like a duty. Well, it just sent. It was like, it was just work, and I didn't like it. Right. But when I was doing similar jobs in Zen, and I was taught as you're talking to me. Right. Naturally, I tell you about it, and that's what I'm saying. We can't criticize our parents for not doing of that. Of course not. Uh, they did the what best we they will can. be able to criticize is parents that study this way right. and then do that to their kids and don't teach them or Zen why they're doing things. This way and, do and, that. and I think yeah. that causes a lot of ruckus because uh, you know right. kids nowadays, are asking why? Why should I go right. shovel the snow? Right. Why should I cut the grass or right. wash the dishes? Right. And nothing and, is sacred that way. Yeah, right. and so that has to be taught. And I yeah. again, we can't I think afraid. that's part of the, it's personality development. You're yeah. not talking to their left shoulder; they're talking. You're talking to their brain. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you're saying there. You can't. We can't be intimidated by those questions because they're they're actually pretty courageous to say to someone, well, why do I have to do that? And if they say they don't know, they ought to be able to say, well, you need to go find a Zen monk. <laughs> right. right? That's right. I mean, that literally happened in the old the old days when That's a difficult right. problem arose. Right. They would direct people right. uh, to Zen, a Zen teacher because they handle naughty problems. Sounds like Zen teachers could be rather useful fellows and fe- and women. <laughs> I don't know what the equal equivalent is for fellow and and the female, but that's interesting. Well, maybe that's a good lead up since I just ended there with useful. Um, next podcast, we're going to share a story about uselessness uh, and a bit more subtle. So maybe this we'll will see. be a good lead up to <laughs> a good lead up to that. Sunim, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.